Welcome back to Mox Madness. Yes, we are back. We are doing it again. We're doing it again. Doing it again in a whole new way because for the first time in two and a half years, we will not be talking about black reconstruction in America. No, no, no. Holy bananas. It's wild. It's crazy. No one expected it to happen. We all thought we would die reading that book, but here we are on the other side. Um, that being said, uh, we are going to be starting our new reading series on neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah. And yes. as we do with everything when we start a new series or a new book or anything like that, we are going to do some background and history on the person. But mm-hmm. unlike previous times where nathan does all of that nathan uh just punted this one to david because you know what once every five nathan's gonna punt one and this is the one he chose to punt so you get to listen to the far more intelligent person talk to you about the life and background of kwame and kruma far more intelligent person i'm just the other guy um (laughs) but so if you're ready for like just total confused disarray darts darts at a dartboard randomness like we had back when we talked about yugoslavia nonsense about kwame and kruma get ready to remember how my brain works it's not pretty um so anyway we're gonna start uh and we're gonna start kind of setting the setting okay obviously this is talking about neocolonialism obviously the fact that africa was colonized is not breaking news to anyone uh but we're specifically going to be talking about uh, a man who helped or well primarily the the founder of ghana and um on top of that uh spent a lot of his life in and was born in what was known as the gold coast which would later become one fourth of ghana so we're gonna have to just set up what that means with african uh colonialism okay uh obviously you know, the, the colonialism in Africa was very brutal and it started off. There was, of course, you know, settlements on Morocco. Um, there were settlements along the western, uh, coast of Africa. Uh, there was settlements along the Cape of Good Hope. And then, of course, there was a lot of interest in the Horn of Africa, but the Horn of Africa held strong for a long time, uh, because of the Ethiopian Empire is one of the last places to be colonized in Africa. But long before the madness of the scramble for Africa, um, which we talked about before setting up World War One. We talked about imperialism, right? Where I think it was like ten percent of Africa was colonized, and then bang, like ninety nine percent of Africa, like everything except Ethiopia was colonized by World War One from eighteen eighty to, to nineteen thirteen or nineteen fourteen. It was just this mass expansion of colonialism, and those conflicts of colonialism uh, not only had Europe formally carve up uh, Africa and set borders based on a uh, meeting in Berlin. Uh, but That's that also you helped. Have your meetings. Yeah. Uh, but that also helped launch, of course, World War One. And we talked about, you know, the conflict of Morocco and, and, and Africa in general being a big catalyst for World War One, and the whole, you know, road trip through Sarajevo and assassination by the Black Hand was, was just kind of the, the, the spark there but uh, a lot of the a lot of what packed that bomb that that blew off was the colonization of africa well for hundreds of years before that obviously africa was brutally colonized and most of that was along this western coast okay it was a region known as guinea it was originally settled by the portuguese uh and then it was kind of split up between like the dutch and the british and the french um and guinea kind of had 
three regions. Okay. There was originally, it was like the grain coast. Again, they did not care about the people here. This was brutal colonialism, right? Yeah. Pretty, pretty uh, on its face. Pretty on its face. So it this grain coast and then there was the gold coast and then there was, uh, in a large region that was actually known as Benin. Um, but in the western part of Benin, uh, was straight up known as the Slave Coast. And that's where they exported most of the slaves till to this day, uh, in a town in what is now Benin, which was only a sliver of what was Benin before, but it was right along this Slave Coast just east of Togoland, uh, is the Gate of No Return, which is where most slaves were exported from Africa. So Ghana is very near this, and it was the gold rich region there okay um and then obviously pan-africanism will play into this quite a bit pan-africanism is something that we're going to get into uh in this discussion um it is something that has its roots in in africa as a united people for uh about 100 years before the 20th century and and the fights for haiti but it was a formal philosophical thing that butted out of the philosophies of du bois and of marcus garvey um and we'll talk about how all that relates specifically to Nkrumah as we get there okay so to set the setting in the middle kind of near the end of this scramble for africa along this gold coast guinea had been broken up and carved up um you know, by Germany. So there was like Togoland and then British had a claim to like the Western little part of Togoland. So there was like Togoland and like British Togoland. Uh, there was the Ashanti Empire, uh, which had lasted for hundreds of years and actually technically lasted until uh, the formation of Ghana in 1957. That was the last basically thing to fall to uh, the British in this scramble for Africa. They resisted until like 1900 or so. Um, And they were kind of in the center of what is now Ghana, just north of the Gold Gold Coast. And then because of that, there was a disconnected northern territories. It was just the northern British territories. That would have all been part of this quote-unquote Gold Coast. It was all part of Guinea. But it got split up because of the resistance of the Ashanti Empire. So you have four regions in what is now Ghana. You had the Gold Coast. uh, You had the uh, what is what is Asante, uh, which is the, the region that was best defended by the Ashanti Empire. Uh, then you have the British Northern Territories and the British claims of what was carved up as Togoland. Okay, and in the Gold Coast region of it, specifically in the Western region of it, uh, you had Kwame Nkrumah born in 1909. Uh, he was just named Kwame at the time per Aiken naming customs, um, because that's where his family came from. Uh, he was not really raised by his father because his father was trying to provide for his family in brutal colonialism. And of course, uh, that means that in you're the Gold Coast, you're going to go off and, and try to be a goldsmith. Okay, so what that's what his father was off trying to do, try to get into goldsmithing uh, to provide for his family. Now, this is a major export region, so there are two important regions you'll want to know in Ghana. There's the secondary port, which is kind of a Twin Cities, uh, the way like in America we have Dallas-Fort Worth or Minneapolis-St. Paul, uh, except these were port cities, uh, and that's Sakandi and uh, uh, Takarati. Okay, and uh, Takarati was the one with the actual port. Um, and then the uh, the other um, major port city and the capital of, at the time, the Gold Coast, and it would later become the capital of Ghana, is Accra. Um, and that's the largest city in the region. And uh, so we're going to be talking about Accra quite a bit in this, okay? Um, so anyway... You know, Kwame was born in 1909. He went to school, and this was 
again, colonialism. So Catholic missionaries were everywhere. They're, they're a major part of, of colonialism. Um, especially, you know, of course, I mean, the Portuguese were the first to settle here. And so these Catholic missionaries had schools everywhere. I know it seems weird. British Catholics getting along, whatever, but they, everybody gets along for colonialism. Of course. When you're doing imperialism, uh, everyone's on the same team. Everyone's on the same team. They're all on the ball together, baby. Um, and so, <laughs> and so he was actually, you know, in one of these schools and he noticeably excelled over other students. Um, he did very, very well in his studies. And so then he, he kept going and started getting trained at a few, you know, missionaries to be a teacher at these schools. And there he met uh, a man named Quagir Agri. Uh, in one of these schools in Accra, okay? Uh, Quagir Acre was very important to the history of Ghana because he's the one that introduced Kwame Nkrumah to W.B. Du Bois, uh, someone hey, who would be, I yeah, know someone who would be a, a long-time philosophical influence of Nkrumah's and later in life a personal friend, and, and, and we will get there, okay? And uh, W.B. Du Bois is known basically as uh, the father of Pan-Africanism. In fact, Kwame Nkrumah, who termed him that. Uh, and the other person he was exposed to is Marcus Garvey. Now, we've touched lightly on Marcus Garvey, okay? Uh, Marcus Garvey is kind of a complex figure when you talk about uh, revolutionary uh, philosophies, right? Because... <laughs> Socialism throughout most of the world, including in the United States, without the nationalism of colonized people, is not the revolutionary science it's designed to be. It would only be that revolutionary science within the metropole and only as long as Marxists take on Lenin's philosophy of imperialism and philosophy of self-determination and wrestle with the national question, okay? What animates Marxism to be truly revolutionary, other than Leninism itself, uh, for colonized people is colonized nationalisms. And again, this is something that, that Lenin independently recognized, but, you know, colonized people need to find their own identity and what that nationalism means themselves. And so something we see echoed echoed we talked about france fanon and we'll talk about some of the observations and the the similarities there uh of course you know walter rodney um had had similar takeaways emilco cabral had similar takeaways uh was not only that and we'll talk about maybe this as we go into neocolonialism because these are similar observations how capital you know continued to to colonize and class even within african people was important uh but something that garvey hadn't gotten to wrestling with but but really began to establish uh, was, you know, black nationalism, right? He didn't wrestle with class within it, and that was a major, major hole in it. And we, we read uh, Harry Haywood and saw the the counter-revolutionary potential in the UNIA uh, and the Back to Africa movement and running off to Liberia, which, of course, left people behind, left class uh, as a whole. But it did come to terms with an idea called Pan-Africanism, which means that all African descendants belong to each other and they, they belong to each other's liberation, right? It's not like, oh, you know, I'm from 
South Africa. So what the hell does Ethiopia's, you know, liberation mean to me? Or what the hell do black people in Atlanta's liberation mean to me? Or I'm in, I'm in, you know, a black person in Fort Lauderdale. What the hell does, does the liberation of, of Kenya mean to me? You know, it doesn't matter. It's all interconnected. It's all interconnected as a colonial class. And while your histories and cultures are vibrantly different, it's an enormous continent and an enormous diaspora that's all been broken up and has its own, uh, colonial uh, history or has its own pre-colonial and colonial histories uh, that it's been through. You're still subject to the same colonialism. You're still struggling from the same continent, um, and so you're you're all interconnected. And so, to some degree, you're all one culture, right? And we'll get to the the material solution to that in in a minute. But but Garvey uh, established that, and what he established is that sense. If you're under that same struggle of being colonized. Africans will never be free unless they can govern themselves. And so this spurred two thoughts, right? This spurred Pan-Africanism and black nationalism. So, of course, Garvey, a, a Jamaican man himself, and, and again, you know, someone who, who pushed um, for the, the you know, uh, back to Africa was before Garvey, but uh, pushed for, you know, Africans going back to, to Liberia and, and black nationalism. Um he was one that, you know, again, there's the flaws, right? He was anti-socialist. Uh, there was also some anti-Semitic stuff in there. He personally had some KKK ties. Um, there, there was definitely some issues with Garvey himself. Uh, but, and, and if you ever see pictures of Garvey, a lot of times you'll see him in a, in a chapeau, in, in a whole, you know, regalia get up, like when he went through Harlem in a regalia get up because he was the, the self-declared president of Africa at the time. Uh, but these colonels, these, these black nationalist revolutionary colonels that set the stage for basically every black revolutionary of the 20th century runs through Garvey. There's a reason he was required reading for the Black Panthers. There's a reason he was one of the primary influences on Kwame Nkrumah. He is a major, major part of black nationalism and pan-Africanism. And so while we do understand the flaws and holes in his theories um, and, and his personal you know, execution of those theories, we do have to understand how important of a revolutionary he is. You know, He's influenced anyone from people who weren't Marxist but were revolutionaries like Malcolm X to pan-Africanist, you know, Marxists like Kwame Nkrumah, okay? Um, and so, Agri was the reason uh, Du Bois and Garvey were introduced to Nkrumah, and of course, with this came uh, nationalism, black nationalism, and pan-Africanism. Um, I will say this, I have not personally read Garvey's autobiography, it would be the perfect thing to set up for this, the Words out of this man's mouth himself. I will get to reading that hopefully alongside this book before we get the end of it. Um, and if not, you know, sometime personally in the future, but I, I was not able to read it in preparation for this, but there are some things I understand from that book, um, that I got out, uh, specifically that the, it's, it's, and again, father of pan-Africanism, he called Du Bois. He, he became friends with Du Bois. Huge influence on him. So we should never, never cut out the influence of Du Bois on uh, Kwame Nkrumah, if you ask Kwame Nkrumah in his autobiography, he said his three biggest influences were Marx, Lenin, and Garvey. He basically took Garveyism and then addressed class in a material way. That okay. was what Kwame Nkrumah brought to the table. Um, 
And so, you know, Nkrumah was quickly ascending in these schools. So Agri had this influence on him, but he was also a very, very good student, right? Um, in fact, you know, in his, his schools, he would meet with Namde Ezekwe, right? Um, and, uh, Namde Ezekwe, uh, was the, uh, first, um, president of Nigeria. Okay. So, Namde Ezekwe was going to these same missionary schools, these same Catholic schools in Ghana before going there. So, you know, there's a lot of people that, that are major revolutionary people that would cross paths. And you'll notice that with Kwame Nkrumah here. Uh, eventually, he goes and he travels to the United States uh, to go to school. Okay. Um, and he goes, he goes to go to Lincoln University, kind of spends a year trying to apply to a Lincoln and never actually gets in, but eventually does get into Lincoln University. So this is 1935. He's 25, 26 years old by now. He's ascended through these primary schools. He's got this black nationalist and, and pan-Africanist influence in him. Um, and he's spending his summers in Harlem. He's working while he's going to school. So he's poor. He's seeing issues with his blackness in these white institutions in the United States. So I think we will probably do a, we're probably going to do a mini madness on, uh, consciousness. might even take a two part, but it's something that's reflective, kind of similar to, um, you know, black skins, white masks in that he's understanding his role, uh, you know, like, Hey, if I'm in the school and they say, they come to me and they say, Hey, I want to make things better for black people at the school. It may be well-intended, Right. And he's certainly going to have an obligation to do it. But then they're there. I mean, he's just servicing this white institution. He's essentially giving them free labor or he's passing on, it. you know, they're coming to him as 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 the black guy there. And so consciousness is a little bit of a dive into that. I bet we'll probably read that. It's a good uh, precursor to what Nkrumah's understanding is uh, while he's in the United States going to these different schools. Right. Um, yeah. But what's really important, yeah, but what's really important is uh, as he's going to school, so he's going to Lincoln University, and then he's going to uh, a seminary in Penn, uh, not Penn State, but Penn University, like Ivy League, uh, Pennsylvania University. Um, And it was in there during the 1940s, uh, he would actually meet up with CLR James, um, and we all know the CLR James. And uh, Ray Spiegel, um, and for those who don't know who she was, um, I, I don't even know how to pronounce her, her Russian name. It's like uh, Dunyevskaya or something. But um, but she went by Ray Spiegel um, in the the United States and and I believe England. Uh, but she was Trotsky's uh, actual secretary, uh, and then she broke away from from Trotskyism um, along with with James. Uh, she went under the pen name Freddie Forrest. Um, and so there's like, you know, the James Forrest Alliance, basically the Trotskyist Socialist Workers Party, uh, the, had this kind of line that the, and this is where you get this USSR, you know, oh, it's, it's, it's just state capitalism. It's this line that the, the USSR was the degenerated worker state and it was just state capitalism. Again, fits, you know, Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution and personal little grievances and things like that. And, J- CLR James and Spiegel like were like no like, the USSR is is actual real life socialism you know 
and and yeah. we're not going to sit here and rip on them, but they've done what, what we haven't done. And so this Trotskyism, this is cool. This is bringing the, the Marxist-Leninism here. It has a different aspect that may be more right or more wrong than Marxism-Leninism. But whatever you have, whether you're more right or more wrong, what's in action over there in that other hemisphere, that's real socialism that has our back, not some degenerated worker state. Screw you. And they actually broke off and made what they just called the Workers' Party rather than the Socialist Workers' Party. Right. And um, so, again, you know, I mean, C.L.R. James, famous uh, the black Marxist, black Marxist, uh, Ray Spiegel, um, you know, Trotsky's former secretary from uh, over in the USSR, kind of, you know, formulating this. These were big influences on getting Kwame Nkrumah to understand Marx, to understand Lenin. And these were foundational to who he was and what he understood in the world. So after he spent some time schooling in the uh, United States, and this is, of course, you know, this is during World War II, right? I mean, this is the 30s and the 40s. um, And so he's seeing things unfold. And uh, he would actually go to London uh, to a conference, a Pan-African conference. He would actually go under the wing of George Padmore at the advice of CLR James. Um, and it, it's actually kind of funny. Supposedly, there was a letter that was written by CLR James to Padmore, in spite of Nkrumah basically getting this far in life because he was just this insanely good student. Everywhere he went, he was this insanely good student and just accomplished more in school on merit itself uh, over and over and over again. You could see where, you know, Du Bois was a good influence on him, the, the you know, Harvard man, you know, uh, black, you know, Harvard product. You could see uh, the same thing with with Kwame Nkrumah, right? I mean, all the odds were against him, and he was he was the exception that proved the rule and and understood that and just kept going to school basically his whole time in the United States after most of his whole life in the Gold Coast and and excelled. Well, in spite of that, Sailor James basically sent a letter that said, "Yeah, so take care of this guy. He's kind of dumb, but he cares about Africans." <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, but George Padmore, he was uh, he was from Trinidad, and uh, he kind of had a he was one of the many people that traveled to the USSR and and became involved in Moscow. Again, you know something we we read before we read about Big Bill Haywood and we read about you know Harry Haywood and and them and the Lenin School and things like that. Um, George Padmore actually went to Moscow and was elected to the Moscow Soviet. Um, and in the Moscow Soviet, he led uh, what they called the Negro. Bureau, uh, the you know basically black liberation portion uh, of the Profin Turn, um, and the Profin Turn was um, just like the Common Turn, Communist International. The Profin Turn was the Red International Labor, the Red International of Labor Unions. It's it's how um, the Communist International connected with the labor unions of the world, and so he was the black leader of that while being part of Moscow's actual city Soviet. So he, he big. Big deal. Um, and the only reason he wasn't still in Moscow at this point is because he kind of had a falling out in the 30s. Um, Padmore noticed that as the Nazi threat climbed, uh, the USSR was scrambling to make relations to these Western colonial powers, fearing Nazis. And that kind of took away from some of the you know backing of the, the decolonial liberations that the USSR had always been a part of. You know, there was less of the struggle towards the national question. Right. There was more of what was called the Russification uh, of the Soviet Union. That was a real material thing. And that concerned a lot of people, understandably, you know, from the Soviet Union's perspective, they're trying to survive against the Nazis who are going to kill them. 
to the colonized people. It was you were the leader. You were the, the, the great, you know, metropole that was on our side. You were helping us liberate ourselves. And now the very people that oppress us that that are only different from from the Nazis in um, intensity. Right. Of of their acts. Right. I mean, Germany was a colonial power before the Nazis rose. Now you're butting up with these guys because of this this threat of, of fascism and Nazi Germany, and you're leaving us behind. And uh, so, because that had more had some differences, uh, broke you know uh, democratic centralism, and basically got booted from the party, and uh, was still very much a, a communist and 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 pushed for world communism, but had his differences with Moscow. We'll say, uh, but that is important because that that helped connect Nkrumah to this Pan African co- uh, Congress. And of course, um, Padmore would later be, you know, one of the people introduced to help the development in Ghana and 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 help the country establish itself. So major, not the best part of history, but a bunch of people having understandable interests and understandable differences led to a split, and that split was essentially part of the formation of Ghana. Um, but when he did travel to London um, to study and to, to partake in this African Congress, which was in Manchester, that's where he would actually meet W.B. Du Bois, who he for a long time had followed the philosophy of, and traveled to America, went to school, never met Du Bois in the United States, but would meet him in Manchester um, at the Pan-African Congress. Um, I don't really know, again... Du Bois would, would retire to Ghana with Shirley Graham Du Bois um, later in life, but I don't know when – I couldn't find anywhere when uh, Nkrumah would actually meet Shirley Graham Du Bois because this was six years before WB and Shirley Graham uh, were married, and obviously Shirley was a, a revolutionary herself. Um, so maybe she was at this Congress too. I, I don't know. I couldn't find those details. Uh, but this Congress was a big deal in – you know. He was speaking to a lot of these great Pan-African leaders. You know, again, these Pan-African con- uh, conferences, uh, like the one Du Bois set up in Paris in 1919, uh, were how you got like, you know, this is this is the father of Pan-Africanism. This had been a major, major thing. And all of these had happened in Europe. That's that's where they could happen is, is Paris and London and Manchester and, and all these places. They never happened in Africa to this point. And that's another thing that Ghana will change. Okay. Um, okay. So shortly after this, 1946, uh, Great Britain is noticing the tides are turning. And a lot of Europe is like after World War II, it, it was just very, very expensive war. They were very weakened. And so they were going to have to set a lot of Africa free. And so what they were doing is they were looking at the places that were important to them. And anywhere that wasn't important as far as like having settlers there or being uh, geostrategically important anymore, which you would think that Ghana would be. And it did used to be. It was part of like right there at the Middle Passage. It was a major, major thing. But with the slave trade died down um, with Ghana being more of an exporter of cocoa at this point than gold. uh, It was one of the countries that was like, okay, you know, it's not it's not worth the fight. (laughs) Let's give them their, their, their flag independence and we'll dominate them with money. Right. Um, the, the good old neo-colonialism. Good right. old neo-colonial. Again, you know, the book we're about to get into. And this is where Nkrumah sees this stuff and he sees this stuff firsthand. Okay, they're, they're going to give us our independence and that's important. We don't want to not take that. Just like, you know, we talked about in Black Reconstruction, you know, 
abolition of slavery was a huge deal. It was incredibly revolutionary. That doesn't mean black people are suddenly free and everything's equal and stuff, but that doesn't make it unimportant. No. And and Nkrumah would see that, and he would see both sides of that contradiction, and he would see it very, very clearly. So, because of that, they were gearing up for some elections, um, some elections in specifically 1951, and so parties were starting to form, okay? Uh, and so, in 1947, a year after this, uh, Nkrumah actually returns to the Gold Coast. He was a major figure um, in in the Gold Coast. I mean, people knew who he was. They knew he was this prize student, and then he was all over these Pan-African uh, congresses with all these other revolutionaries like he was a big deal and so the first party that formed there uh the ugcc they knew who he was and they reached out and they're like hey we we want to make you a big deal we want to make you our general secretary which again secretary doesn't sound great but as we know from uh the communist party and, and the general secretary basically being equal to the president in that versus other parties it's not necessarily general secretary can be a very powerful position depending on party structure Right. And yeah. and so they recruited him to be general secretary to kind of give some oomph in his party. And, and he was very, very popular uh, among the peoples of the Gold Coast and, and, of course, also of the, you know, Ashanti Empire and, and British Togoland, basically the entire British colony there. Uh, he was incredibly popular. And so they started recruiting him in 1946 when this this party founded itself. Uh, and in 1947, he actually returned there. But he always had this problem with the UGCC. They they wanted independence. They wanted to, you know, Africa for the Africans. They wanted to to rule Africa. This was the first time you could have a legislature with majority African representation, which is why this is the first time it had a party. But they didn't have the same, like, power to the people stance. It was still a very conservative, collaborationist party, right? Um and he had issue with that. And then he started making enemies in the party. So first, he goes to the party and he starts forming a, a youth organization. They called it the CYO. And that would be uh, important later. Um, but he wanted this youth uh, youth organization to get, you know, uh, bring party, bring power to the, the, the people, right? I mean, their kids are on board. Everybody, as they grew up, they become loyal to the politics of the Africans rather than the British, right? Um, he also... <laughs> Uh, went out to the the servicemen um, who who would basically serve for the British, say Air Force, uh, Ghana district, you know things like that, right? The British Navy, the the Ghana. He he had these servicemen on his side, right? Well, he had just returned there for a year, and inflation was bad. Uh, there was some conflicts. So cocoa, uh, the way it grows, it, it, ha it can suffer from something called a swollen shoot syndrome, which means these little bugs go around that, that normally, you know, help migrate the sugars between the plants. It has something to do with pollination. I don't quite understand it, right? But they carry this disease from, from other plants from the rainforest, and it causes the shoots to swell up, and the plant will bring less yields and then eventually die. And... The downside of that is you essentially have to kill the plant before this swollen shoot syndrome spreads to, to other plants. Well, these people had worked hard for their crops. They're facing inflation. They're they're you know worried about the the quickly diminishing quality of life, and so they're trying to get the most out of these crops. And so they're saying, okay, let's not kill these crops yet. Let's let's get our harvest from them 
and then kill them. And the British are like, no, this is bad for profits. And they're just fucking killing all the crops with, with swollen shoot or, or close enough to swollen shoot to try to, you know, minimize this. Um, and so this, the inflation, all these things are, are having these huge rise in tensions. Okay. And so in Accra, um, you know, there's this huge march of these. I talked about the, the servicemen, right? Who were who were in the you know, say Air Force or Navy, British Navy, the the Ghana unit, right? Started yeah. a march through Accra to the mayor's office to to as a protest, and British okay. soldiers fired on them. <laughs> well, okay. there you go. There you go. Uh, that doesn't really quell social unrest very well. And so that got known as the 1948 Acre riots that that would come out of it. And when those got essentially settled down, there were six people blamed for them. Uh, one of them, of course, was in Kruma. They were all UGCC members. And so he got arrested. He was sent to jail for like five years for this. OK, um, now he's working still from jail. On this 1951, this upcoming election, that was three years from now, right? He's he's running his parties, you know, the, the UGCC is running, and he's he's working with the CYO, and he's got this slogan that's going through the youth that are, is very, very big. It says, self-government now, which has a lot of pull when you're leading a protest that the people support that got fired at with guns. And you say, yeah. we should govern ourselves now. People are going to support you. So he was very, very popular. In fact, the UGCC was scrambling because they're like, okay, we had to like basically expel him and denounce him from the party because of of this this riot. And we're super conservative and collaborationist, but he's super popular. If we throw him out of the party, we're fucked. And so they like try to make him the the treasury secretary. Like he handles the money from prison. It's I mean, it's basically more honorary at that point. They're they're trying to do damage control. And um, he's working with the CYO, and eventually he looks at the CYO, he looks at these service members that marched. He looked at women, he felt like women were not represented extremely well in the party. And he gathers all these people together and he says, okay, we're breaking off. And and we want, you know, we want to form our own country, so we need a convention to do it. So we're the Convention's People's Party. Okay? Okay. And that would be the party that Kwame Nkrumah would rise to power with and 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 rule with all through until until he was cooed was the CPP the Conventions People's Party um and that's that's where you get the famous um you know freedom um forward ever uh, backwards never slogans right you see that the the red rooster that that's the CPP formed that okay so all of a sudden he's running in an election against this UGCC 1951 he's still in prison. The CPP wins out of the 38 seats, 34 of them. They rush the election. Yeah, and this is February 1951. February 12th, he's let out of prison, basically immediately. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he just won full control of the government, it his, sounds like. Yeah, his party just controlled the government. Like, all right, we got to get out of prison. We're fucked. <laughs> um, Game over, man. And so Great Britain, you know, trying to... to do damage control themselves, right? I mean, neocolonialism is a big thing. They want to be able to to have their tendrils in there and invest and still have power and just give the nice formality of independence, right? Yeah, you can govern yourselves, but they don't want to lose this. And so like, okay, you know, they get their, their white savior bootstraps on, you know, oh, we're going to build you schools and shit like that. And they have this great 10-year development plan. And 
Kwame Nkrumah comes in and goes, yeah, all those 10-year goals, we're going to hit them in five years and better. And he does. Okay. So by the time the 1957 election rolls around, um, he's hit all of these 10-year goals. Like, Ghana is ready to break apart. And or it's got is ready to break away from from uh, British control and become an independent state. Uh, I'm sorry, the 1956 elections, and so in five years he's accomplished this. Like you know, the the graduates from school have more than doubled. He's building infrastructure. Uh, the most famous thing uh, there's a Akaroso Dam. Um, that construction didn't even start on that till 1961, so after the formation of Ghana. But that had basically been drummed up and mulled around and in the works and not in the works and going to break ground and not going to break ground and and basically had its feet drag on that since 1914. And, and in five years, he basically had put enough work in it to make it clear that like, oh no, we're going to be breaking ground on this in the next 10 years. And sure enough, in 1961, they were breaking ground on it. But I think 1966 or 1967, it was done being built and and to this day that's the source of most of the electricity in ghana uh is this akasoko uh akasora i can't remember the name of it this huge dam right um you know i mean he he was always big on on building infrastructure on um um oh my goodness i suddenly can't think of the word building factories and stuff um industrializing he was really big on industrializing ghana and the British were really trying to set this out. We're like, okay, you get the Gold Coast, and we'll have these other regions, or we'll break these other regions up into their own thing. And this was something where Nkrumah would not budge. So when they won again, 34 or 35 seats out of 38 in 1956, it was very clear that Nkrumah was holding the cards, and when he said, I want all four of these British territories, British Togoland, Asante, the Northern Territories, and the Gold Coast, we're going to form one country. You know, this is his first kind of pan-group effort of of African liberation. Obviously, he wanted all of Africa to be one united country, right? Um, But right now, he's dealing with four split British territories, and he's already bringing them together, because that's where he really had the pull. And that was how Ghana was formed. It was March 6th, 1957. I have it somewhere here. Hold on. Uh, Yeah, March 6th, 1957. It gained its independence. And it was electoral. Okay? It wasn't an armed revolution. But something that was immediately clear to Nkrumah was when the British said, hey, you guys get independence. It's only these territories that don't. Or when all the other European powers basically said, we carved this all up in Berlin. You guys all get independence, but these borders are still important, and we still control these territories. It was basically saying, you're only going to get these territories if you fight with them, fight for them, right? You're not going to get Angola or Algeria or, or any of these territories or South Africa back without armed revolution, right? It was basically telling you, you had to fight if you're going to get all of Africa back. Um, In fact, there was a a huge uh, battle because Ethiopia uh, had just lost independence like right before World War II. Um, And it was a powerful empire in Africa for years. Um, So it was a big fight, you know, of course, to get Ethiopia back. Uh, This was all, you know, it it was basically drawing a line in the sand, right? And so to us, you know, who would know better, we'd be like, oh, they're granting independence to most of Africa, to the Africans that saw the writing on the wall, they went, oh, 
they're marking these places as important to them, and we can't have them as Africans unless we fight for them. We're it's really them declaring war on select regions, um, and so that would again be a major, major part of Nkrumah's understanding of Pan Africanism. And so, 1958, uh, Nkrumah and we talked about George Padmore. Uh, they put together the All African People's Congress in Ghana. Okay, so this is the first time that these Pan Africanist congresses we talked about—they were in Paris, they were in Manchester. It was finally in Africa. Okay, and there were other things that that were working where you know um, Nkrumah was working for all of Africa. Right? He he built an All African Trade Union Federation. There was a conference for all African women. Uh, he was pushing for Africa unity as a people because again we're talking about a pan-africanist right and we can get into this a a little bit more but but basically pan-africanism the basis is all of africa is is what it needs to rise up as one country right there's one broad pan-african country to give control to africans that's how they they find their power um throughout all this of course he was a revolutionary figure and so he faced a lot of assassination attempts, uh, which they kept having to make moves that the West would see as, oh, my God, authoritarian, dur, 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 um, such as he eventually had to outlaw other parties. He had to be more careful about, um, you know, uh, writing motorcades, things like that, because they were trying to kill him. They were trying to oust him the entire time. Right. Yeah. Um and so he actually, it actually was legal. Only one party was legalized in 1964, and that was the CPP. Okay. Um, he also, again, was developing the country. We talked about the dam. He was also trying to industrialize the country um, and trying to industrialize, such as, you know, the cocoa exports, things like that. Um, and so, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois and Shirley Graham Du Bois were part of these efforts. Padmore was part of these efforts. Jeffrey Bing was part of these efforts. Maya Angelou was part of these efforts. And then there is one detail we do have to discuss because it was a major part of who he was. Um, it's a little weird. So we've talked about before because we've talked about World War II. And of course, the important thing when we analyze it is, is you know, fascism and its, its ideological alignments, its, its actions of, of the capitalists that show those ideological alignments the fact that fascists show that their enemies truly are socialists to understand fascism. And one of the ways, one of the many, many ways you understand that is of course, operation paperclip and, and, you know, the formation of, of NATO where, where, you know, Nazis and, and West Germany where Nazis were placed right back into power broadly. Right. And the West did that everywhere. It did that with no ideological reckoning for these Nazis. And it did that on a scale that socialists never would okay that doesn't mean that socialists didn't always work like you know the ussr took in some nazi scientists to help with their sciences which is kind of and again not nearly on the scale of the west but it it was a thing we have to reckon with the fact that that happened well there's a person named Hannah Reich, okay, and she was one of the closest people to Hitler. She was very, very high-ranking in the Nazi Air Force. She was actually, like, in the bunker, ready to take one of the poison pills, ready to die with Hitler, and then at the last minute kind of got pulled out. And 
somewhere along the lines, and you can think of this as white saviorism, you can debate, you know, whether or not this was good or strategic or whatever, but somewhere along the lines, um, she felt, you know, she turned away from the Nazism and felt that, you know, she regretted, supposedly in her memoir, she regretted being racist at all and, and her eyes were opened and things like that, which is something you can't say to some of these Nazi scientists but people in Ghana, some of them were understanding, were like, this lady was one of the closest people to Hitler. We're not happy about it. Um, but she was brought in. Uh, she was brought in by Nkrumah to basically the, the kind of the apple of his um, developmental eye. The big, the big, you know, kind of shining beacon of, of all this development was this gliding school. That would help Ghana have a powerful air force, which would be one of their ways to stay wealthy and have a strong defense. And the gliding school would help students kind of develop supposedly socially, also get them into flight and get them more prepared to be pilots later. It was a major part of Ghana's development. Well, this gliding school, the the Ifenya gliding school, uh, was headed up by Hannah Reich, who was very close personally with Kwame Nkrumah. And there's some talk about maybe there was a romance here. I don't know. They definitely talked in letters and called each other like Big Bush and Little Bush. It was it was weird, but they were close. And so it's important to understand that both on like he took this development seriously and took in a myriad of of minds to develop, but also that's another nugget that colonial powers could exploit to divide people. So there was there was some unrest there with people that were understandably not very happy that one of Hitler's closest people were there. While him and probably most of the people of Ghana were like, how is this different than the other colonial powers? We've got to welcome in Western development or we don't develop. She's just someone else there. Um, so just just understand that nugget when when you see him cooed. I mean, there a lot of things going on there. Um, and then 1963... Uh, there was this founding conference for what was known as the OAU, the uh, um, something, Af- what is, I forget what the O is, something African Union, uh, the Organization of African Unity. Yeah, Organization of African Unity. Uh, and so this is in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Uh, it was already a slight that it was not in Accra uh, because this was something, of course, that uh, Nkrumah was pushing very hard for. And Nkrumah basically went to this formation and he saw it and he was like, this serves reaction. This is not good. And he was ready to walk out and he had to be basically convinced to go back in. Okay. Okay. And so he goes back in and, you know, they're talking about it. They're debating this formation. And there's this big push, of course, by uh, the Angolan prime minister that's like, hey, you know, we, we can't unify Africa if it's not all liberated. We have to liberate Africa. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. And, and so finally they came together in this heat of the moment because this – I'm sorry, not Angolan, Algerian. This Algerian prime minister said, okay, I've got 10,000 troops. We've just won our independence from France fighting. We can take our troops south and we can liberate everyone. And – the big concern there was the terms, right? Like people like Nkrumah wanted to be like, we're going to draw our own borders. 
we're going to eventually not have borders. We want bi- one big unified Africa, but so much as it's a unified unified grouping of, of a subset of nations, we don't want the borders dictated in Berlin. Or what was dictated in Berlin, you know, what, 70 years before this, right? Yeah. Um, and basically, they all bought into that because they're like, okay, well, we're, we're all going to fight for each other. And I'm not saying this was a lie by the Algerian prime minister. This was probably totally intended. Um, but things happen. And sure enough, those troops never came south. No one, no one ever fought to, to um, liberate Africa together. And the borders that were established in Germany were then kind of hardened by this OAN. A lot of this pan-African force, it, it kind of got sapped away. And so this was a big win for the West. Um, and not long after this, you know, Nkrumah was supporting revolutionaries, right? You know, he would, he would of course, uh, support, you know, anywhere from, from you know, Cuba's uh, revolution uh, to Vietnam's revolution. Um, so not long after this, uh, in 1966, I want to say, um, yeah, 1966, he was going to Vietnam and then China uh, to oppose the war on Vietnam. Um, and while he was there, uh, there was a military coup that was um, led by Joseph Arthur Ankara. Um, and Nkrumah, of course, openly believed this to be U.S. backed, supposedly from intelligence he got from the Soviet embassy. Um, even currently, you can look at like some of the, the FOIA documents from the, the State Department, and they specifically cite that Nkrumah did more to undermine U.S. interests than anyone else in Africa. So him being U.S. target makes a lot of sense. And immediately in this coup, some of these countries like Guinea and Ghana were very, very close because these were both, you know, socialist countries newly liberated from these European powers. Um, you know, Ghana was close with the Soviet Union. It was close with China. It was close with the Eastern Bloc. All of these ties were severed. And basically the IMF and the World Bank were just welcome in to have carte blanche on the Ghana economy. And, Which I'm sure will end well because that that's always a benevolent institution. Oh, oh yeah, I super super duper well. Gotta gotta love the IMF and World Bank has everybody's interest in mind. Thumbs up all the way. Never a concern or, or or someone that you know we hate to to every fiber of our being on this podcast. No. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, China supporting him. They they were you know let him stay in, in Beijing until he get things settled, and then he was basically sent into exile because. He, he couldn't go back to Ghana. In fact, he never made it back to Ghana in his life because if he ever did, they, they'd just kill him, you know? Yeah. Um, and so he went to nearby Guinea, who was a socialist um, African Republic um, that they were very, very close with. Um, you know, Ahmed Touré was, was the president there. And when Ahmed Touré welcomed him into Guinea, uh, he actually made him honorary co-president. Obviously, that was not a title of power, although certainly, you know, um, Nkrumah was respected and, and would have power if he spoke up, but it was it was more of an honor there. Uh, and he stayed there until 1971. And um, in 1971, his health was kind of failing. And so he went to the Socialist Republic of Romania, part of the Eastern Bloc that he had been close with before. 
1972, so shortly after arriving in Romania to, to seek more health care with his failing health, uh, he was found to have prostate cancer and died. Um, Jesus. Yeah. And then, of course, his body was sent back. Um, Necrofol, which was the town where he was born, uh, he was originally buried at. Uh, and then eventually his remains were moved to a large kind of elaborate national memorial in Accra. And to this day, obviously the politics because of the coup are very divorced uh, from what Nkrumah put forth. But Nkrumah has a lot of pull as a figure. And so kind of that whole first paragraph of state and revolution thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, they'll, they'll take our revolutionary figures and, and they'll they'll kind of make liberal mincemeat. They'll strip them from everything revolutionary of them and, and make them assemble. Kind of, we talked about how we can see that with Martin Luther King and he was talking about, you know, Bernstein doing that with, with Marx in that book. Uh, that's kind of what politicians tend to do these days in Ghana with Nkrumah, right? They invoke the name, they're Nkrumists, but they're not necessarily these Pan-African the Pan-Africanist socialists. They're, they're people that tend to invoke the name because if you don't, you have no political pull there because he is such a big figure in Ghana. He is, he's, you know, the father of, of the country essentially to them. Right. And, and yeah. in Africans across the world, he's uh, called said he was at, um, at the fountainhead of Pan-Africanism is, is the way they put it. Um, you know, so th- he's definitely an incredibly large figure in Pan-Africanism. Um, he is he is the guy when you it get seems, into that. It kind of seems that way. It does kind of seem that way. Okay. Now, that being said, we will definitely dig into Pan-Africanism uh, on the next episode of our intro series. This was David. I cannot thank you enough. That was an amazingly detailed and good uh, biography for Nakuma, and I, I really appreciate the context and all the work you put into this, so thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, and anyone out there, too, of course, you know, we do this to help people read, but like I said, admittedly, I am still yet to, and I will. I'm not I'm not going to drop the ball on that, but I, I did not plan things out where I've I've already read his autobiography. I, I took, you know, snippets and understanding from it, and and uh, a myriad of resources in this this research, but the best resource is his autobiography. Uh, it's entitled Ghana, and so I would encourage anyone for an even more detailed um, understanding of Nkrumah and and you know right from um, the man himself. Uh, I would strongly recommend a a reading of that biography. It's about three hundred pages, and I'm just fighting to get my hands on it and get time to read it um, myself. and And I would encourage you to do so. But hopefully, in lieu of that, um, and hopefully that in lieu of it is temporary until you do read it. Hopefully, I gave a little bit of a context so that we're more prepared as we walk into um, reading neocolonialism. Absolutely. Uh, that being said, uh, David, it is unfortunately time for the disclaimer. So oh <laughs> I know I know I've been taxing you this week, but I got I got to tag you in one more time, buddy. OK, um, so basically when we started this podcast, uh, Nathan just came up to me and was like, hey, I'm reading Capital. You've read Capital before. And yeah, I, I haven't read neocolonialism before. So just like these last couple books, folks, we're going on this adventure together. Uh, but <laughs> I had read Capital. And a few other uh, Marxist works like State and Revolution, things like that, when Nathan came to me and he was like, okay, let's read Capital together. 
Um, and that way I can better understand it. And that's something you want to do whenever you're reading any work of theory or history, uh, is to read it as a group, is to read it in chunks, discuss it together, make sure you understand it, make sure you have the right context behind it, that you understand the context behind it, understand how it relates to you, things like that. Okay. So hopefully, since we started this podcast, what we've wanted, because we just kind of recorded it, we wanted more than two people, we're glad you can join us, uh, is that hopefully you're in some kind of party, some kind of organization, and your reading group, your political education group, is reading these books, and we can be one more voice in that reading group just to give you more context, give you another viewpoint, another uh, uh, point of interest, something else to get more out of these works. Um, let's assume you're not doing that. Let's say your uh, reading group is reading something short shorter or more applicable to what projects you're working on at the moment. Uh, hopefully we can be that reading group if you're reading this on your own and we can give you that context. We can give you that point of discussion. We can help you get more out of it and soak up the meaning of it like a sponge and, and really have it out there to guide you. And save for that, let's say, you know, it's either something that we read word for word, kind of more like an ebook, or it's something where um, we're kind of summarizing it for you. Whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you, because we want this uh, theory out there guiding your actions. And when you put this theory into action, that's a phenomenon called praxis. You'll see that in party organizing. You'll see that in um, aid uh, or mutual aid. And yes, those are two, two different things and both important things. Um, you'll see this in, in any of your actions out there. Any of the actions guided by this, this theory is called praxis. And of course, there's no such thing as praxis without theory guiding it. And theory is completely useless without the praxis. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen, as always. Well, that being said, this has been the first series of our introduction in neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah. This is Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.